Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Emily Veseland will talk about the hot news in the industry, a weird jewelry story of the week, and Rob will interview diamond analyst Paul Zimnitsky about lab-grown diamonds and the future of the diamond industry. But first, we'll start with something from the archives of JCK Magazine that's over 140 years old. All right. Um, so in honor of JCK's 150th anniversary, we're going through our voluminous archives here. And uh, managing editor Melissa Rose Bernardo says she's found something really cool from, uh, from the archives. All right. Thanks, Rob. So this is from the February 1878 issue. I remember that one. Yeah. Yes. Good one. I, we all do, don't we? Of the Jewelers Circular and Orological Review. That's what JCK was called back then. And this is from the Foreign Notes section. So this is a little technical, but I think the chemistry buffs out there will find it interesting. The artificial production of rubies and sapphires in France is regarded as highly successful. 1878, remember. The process consists chiefly of heating to redness for 20 days, a mixture of plumbic aluminate with silica. The aluminate crystallizes out in the form of corundum. Does this sound familiar at all? A real compelling writing there. Yeah, no, I, it's... Uh... Right? <laughs> So, Sounds uh, interesting. Yeah, I don't. I don't really understand all that stuff. So, I, the addition of potassic bichromate turns the corundum to ruby. The addition of cobalt oxide turns the corundum to sapphire. The artificial gems meet every test which can be applied to the natural ones. Okay, now this is actually the super interesting part. The recent reduction of oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen to liquids has started the suggestion that in this shape they might prove powerful solvents, in which case a new line of research will be opened that might perhaps lead to the manufacture of diamonds. Oh, my gosh. And it only it took, like, what, uh, nearly 150 years for it to really get going, but it happened. So 141 years ago, they were predicting the manufacture of diamonds. You know, so when I started at National Jewel, this was, like, in, I think, 92, the first week... I was there. The big story was Tom Chatham was going to do man-made diamonds, and then th- that kind of didn't happen. And then some other things started to some other companies. So there's a lot of companies that kind of talked a lot about it that didn't happen, and it's it's just kind of thing that that kind of went on through the years, and now it's actually happening. So it's it's interesting to kind of track all this stuff. I know. Who knew? What, but 141 years ago, they were talking about this. I saw that, and I was actually, I was shocked. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And that they were actually making rubies and sapphires, that that was actually happening. I'll have to then. ask Tom, because I know his father was one of the first people to do commercial uh, rubies and sapphires and emeralds. Uh, I think it was in the 50s, a long time ago. But yeah, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Our, our archives are so wild when you look at them. They, they really are. We, we have, I, the, the bound copies are amazing, and the covers are gorgeous, the illustrations, and some of them are actually like paintings, and we're going to be running a lot of them throughout the year on the back pages of each issue, and then the September-October edition is actually going to be a whole 150th anniversary spectacular, so it'll be pretty exciting. 
And, and Mark was saying that there aren't that many publications that have lasted 150 years. I know there's newspapers, but not that many magazines. No. I think they said The Atlantic and I think Harper's, Bazaar maybe. or Yeah, you can kind of count them on one hand. So we're, we're in pretty rare company. Okay. Well, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right. I'm uh, Rob Bates, news director of JCK and JCK Online. And with me is uh, Miss Emily Vesseland. I love Miss. That's nice. Yes, I'm <laughs> Emily Vesseland, <laughs> senior editor for JCK. It's nice to chat with you. Yes, very nice to be here. Um, and we're going to chat about the jewelry business today. Um, so I guess we should start with how the holiday sales went. Yes. What kind of things are you hearing? Okay, so I am hearing that the season on the whole went really super duper well and that sales were up. I'm hearing sort of from an array of jewelry retailers that everybody had a really good, solid, strong season. And then I read on almost every outlet, the traffic itself was a little down, like 3%. But I'm racking that up, and I would love to hear what you have to say about this, to the rise of online shopping, and that online shopping was up like, I'm going to make up this number, but it was something like 30-something percent. So that would, it would follow that store traffic was a little bit down. And I think that actually for as much as Online traffic was up. Store traffic actually did pretty darn well. What do you think? And what have you been hearing? So I think it was a good season overall. Um, the numbers uh, from MasterCard, I guess, are that holiday jewelry sales went up 3.7%, which is less than the overall sales went up. But it's a decent number. Um, it's less than last year when jewelry sales went up 5.9%. I think people had their hopes really high because it's been a good year and I don't think the season delivered as much in every case. In some cases it did, but um, I would say a lot of the trends were the same as, as prior years. I think the higher end did better than the other segments of the business. Um, it was very much the kind of standard stuff that people have been buying year after year, Rolex, uh, diamond fashion, a lot of custom, uh, lab grown was kind of the big kind of hot thing of the summer. We didn't hear as much about it, uh, over the holiday. And, um, I would say the, the wholesalers aren't that happy, but you know, the wholesalers are never that happy. I mean, they always complain. What do you hear? What do they say? Why are wholesalers not happy? What's going on? I think they just, I think people had huge expectations of the business, of the holiday. And um, it's, it's still tough. Uh, online seemed to do pretty well. And the other thing that a lot of people say was it was a really, and you hear this, I mean, this is definitely something you hear every year, but it was a last minute holiday. That's what everybody says. And I have some stats on that if you want them. But what's weird about that is that's when the headlines started to get really bad because that's when you started to hear about the stock market going down and the, the trade war start to heat up. So it's kind of weird that even though the headlines were bad, that's when people still started to uh, turn out. Now, you said you had some stats on that? So I do. Okay, so shopper track. So, yes, just who addressed that point. 
um, for sure. It was the sort of like convergence of bad headlines in the Washington Post and New York Times and like great retail sales. But I mean, I think that people just didn't have time to digest the bad news that was happening in the economic world. They were just too busy shopping. They were just not paying attention. I think we'll see a fallout. You know what I mean? Like we'll see a fallout from that in the coming months. I mean, depending, obviously we're shut down now and there's so many crazy things. Yeah. You're in DC. What's it, what's it like over there? It's brutal and it's dour and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's interesting. And it's also sad. I have a couple of friends, like I have a, I have a friend who works at the SEC and she was about to come back from maternity. And then she's like, well, furlough trumps my maternity leave. And I said, you know, paid or unpaid. And she's like, unpaid, I'm unpaid with a new baby, you know? So obviously there are lots of people who are going to be struggling from this and it's going to, you know, it's going to trickle down to retail. And I think we'll see some, some slowing numbers. So, okay. So the busiest shopping days, according to shopper track were the 23rd, which is black Friday the 22nd, which is Super Saturday, which blew it, which blew the roof off, apparently. Super Saturday was the best Super Saturday in years. And then Saturday, December 15th, Sunday, December 23rd, okay, then November 24th, December 8th, which was a Saturday, December 21st, which was a Friday, and then December 26th, and then December 29th, and then December 1st. So people were still shopping after the holiday. Exactly. No, those were huge days, which I think is a little bit, you tell me what you think too, but I think it's a little bit of a shift. I think that's been going on for a while. People just forget or they want to take advantage of the sales or that's been going on. The day after Christmas, for whatever reason, has always been a very strong holiday as far as retail. Okay. I didn't realize it ranked among among like the busiest, busiest, but that... That totally makes sense. That totally makes sense. And the, the, the busiest shopping days sort of aligned with what Shopper Track thought they were going to be. They thought Black Friday and then Super Saturday, and that's exactly and how it was. Super Saturday, out, so. that's like a new, I don't think I've heard that term before. Is that relatively, that's the Saturday before Christmas, assuming exactly. it doesn't fall on a Saturday. It is. And you know, when I, I covered retailer, I covered retail for Women's Wear Daily for a while, and there was no Super Saturday. So it is, it is, and that wasn't in the dark ages. It was, you know, recent past. And uh, so I think that it is, I think you're right. I think it is a newer term, um, but I think they had to name it because it was just so, such a great sales day. Well, I think overall it's been a pretty good year. It was a pretty good holiday, but, and I think it's, it's spotty, but you know, throughout this whole recovery that we've seen since the recession it's always been spotty that that you know um people have one good month and then one bad month and that certain stores will do well and certain states will do well well you've been at jck for 21 years did you use is did the spottiness really show up post-recession like recession and then post-recession or was were there other years was it i feel like i, I think about this sort of like these days before the recession where I wasn't covering jewelry retail, you tell me of just sort of this, this, this slow, but upwardly, you know, directed trajectory for jewelry where there was sort of no spottiness, but maybe that's incorrect. What I was think it, it like? was less spotty. I think it was a little bit more predictable in the past than it is now. Um, you know, there's always going to be everything spotty, 
you know, life is spotty. But um, the I think there was less. I think it was a little bit more predictable than it is right now. Yeah. Than it is now. Now it's like up and down, up and down. So Rob, tell me about what you've been hearing from the lab-grown diamond side from the retailers and the wholesalers. I mean, obviously we know this is picking up, but tell me what you've been hearing. You know, I haven't been, uh, I'll talk with Paul in a, a bit about it. Um, I haven't been necessarily checking in with them. I think I think they're on a huge roll. I think especially the people who are uh, producing the lab-grown are doing extremely well. From what I heard, they're mostly sold out and their their production is mostly accounted for. Um, Washington Diamond, which is a kind of uh, one of the companies that's big in this, um, just got a big investment from a private equity fund. So I think it's, you know, we'll see how this uh, shapes up this year, but they had a really nice year last year. And I think for, you know, for retailers, especially for independent retailers, it's a, it's an easy sale and it's it's good for them in that, you know, Blue Nile doesn't carry the product. Signet doesn't carry the product. Um, yep, it's something, it's something new. new. The guy across the street may not carry the product. You know, at some point, I think a lot of these big names are going to jump into it, and I think that's going to hurt the margins, right? And that's going to hurt. Yeah, but right now, it's solid. Right now, it's yeah. good. And I think it's an easy, if you believe in the product, which not everybody does, but if you believe in it, it's an easy sale to make because you're telling like a a young guy who's just about to get married, this is the same product for $1,000 less, right? Who's, you know, everyone wants to save money, right? And especially if you're young and you're just starting out and all the things that perhaps are important to the industry about the long-term value of these diamonds, that doesn't necessarily, if you're a first-time young guy getting engaged, that doesn't necessarily play a role because you think, you're, you're not really thinking that kind of long-term. You're not really thinking, okay, I might have to sell that, this, or something like that. Right. You're thinking about how do I get the biggest diamond for the least amount of money to impress my sweetheart, right? I mean, that's what's on your mind. You're not looking at the four Cs. You're looking at size. You're looking at sparkle. And if they give the eco pitch, that kind of puts it over the edge, you know, kind of like, oh, and not only are you saving money, you're doing something good. So I think... Okay, can we, can we talk about this? And maybe it will make it in, maybe it mm-hmm. won't. The eco pitch, because you and I have both been writing about lab grown, me more on the fashion and brand side, you on the industry side. But the eco pitch, does it hold water? What is the veracity of lab grown diamonds are, yes, yes, they are, more, a more sustainable choice than mine, than mine diamonds? Because I'm hearing that it's not. Tell me. You know, it's something I actually hope to do a really big thing on um obviously you don't dig a hole in the ground for a a lab diamond so that's something that's a plus um but you know the rest of it as far as uh carbon footprint and stuff like that there's no there's no been any kind of real independent testing as far as power use as far as some of these other things that that are claimed as to how much better the lab-grown are. So it would be nice to have some kind of independent uh, verification. And uh, again, you know, I guess the, the other point that people make is that, you know, millions of people have based their livelihoods on mine diamonds. And, you know, these are people in some of the poorest countries in the world. And, and if, you know, 
if they go out of business, I mean, that would be a, a disaster for, for millions of people. I mean, you know, uh, yeah, I was just reading about, I mean, I was just writing about Sears that, you know, is going to, I guess, 50,000 people are going to lose their jobs. This is, I mean, this is millions and these are it's not like sears where you can you know you, you eventually find another job in the united states you know won't necessarily do that in like the central african republic or some of these places exactly there's not a social safety net there for those people this is their only option to make yeah so the impact is is potentially devastating yeah yeah so i mean uh, you know obviously there's some there have been huge issues regarding diamond mining and they'll you know, there still continue to be, and you know, some some of them are are, are quite serious. But um, the the idea that this is something that's going to help the planet, like I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't have anything against lab diamonds. If people want cheaper things, you know, I'm a I'm certainly a very cheap person. So if if uh, <laughs> if, if, if people if people want to buy something for cheaper, I mean that you know, I don't I don't really care. You yeah, I'm not going to tell them no. But um, the the idea that this is helping the world, I don't I don't think that's proven. I think it could be very it could have a very bad impact. So anyway, that's something actually I want to call up environmental groups and try to get any kind of stats. There's no there's a very huge lack of solid stats. So that's in the next something that I want to do in the next couple of weeks is try to talk to people, talk to the experts in these fields, and see what we can find out about the different kinds of um, impacts. Absolutely, and you're the man to do it, 100%, because there is, for sure, um, no, for sure. And also, I I mean, I just think that, you know, we get pitched all the time from lab, we we always talk about, we get pitched all the time from lab-grown brands, which it's amazing. I'm 100%, you know, interested and, and, you know, in getting things for cheaper. I, I am a diamond lover. And, and I'm not somebody who's looking at the four C's and really even cares about that. I care about the overall look. I care about how it wears. You know, I care about the design that it's in much more so than the actual quality of the diamond. I do not believe I'm alone in this, but I think that, um, they have really taken off with this, uh, marketing pitch that it is eco-conscious. It is, is, it is sustainable. Um, maybe it is. I just, I'm, 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 uned, I'm uneducated about it. But I think that it, I think it's an interesting thing, and I think it would be so awesome if you could like dig in there and figure that out. Because I'll try my best. I mean, I think look, look clearly. I put it to you. I put it to you. I Rob mean, Bates. clearly, there's you know, a, a mine is a mine. It's a big hole in the ground, so there's going to be an environmental impact to that. But then again, if you're a poor country and you want to develop your economy, you know, sometimes you have to dig a hole in your ground. You know, and they. If they want to do that, they should be able to do that, I think. So, um, yeah, there's community building that takes place. There's, 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 there's an uplift effect, right, that can happen with diamond mining and does happen. Yeah. So, I don't, you know, it's not, it's, it, it's obviously not a, a perfect industry by any means, but, um, I, I think you have to say, if this goes away, what's going to happen to the millions of people who are affected? And it's not even a matter of like liking the industry or not liking the industry or thinking the industry is good or bad. It's just a matter of like, this is a hard reality that exists. And um, we have to figure out uh, what that the potential uh, impact of that is. But you know, I think that's, that's longer term in the future. But um, again, you know, and the other thing is the Federal Trade Commission, uh, 
one of the rules is that you can't they, they strongly dissuade against making generalized what is called generalized uh, environmental impact statements so just saying eco-friendly like everything you know it, it, if you think about it it's a meaningless term because everything is kind of yeah everything exactly. is kind of eco-friendly and um or one hopes i mean i guess if you sit and pump smoke into the uh, yeah, that's not eco friendly right, but yes yes but you know i think yeah. most things at least important involves yeah yeah go on please at least try to be eco friendly so the idea that you could just say hey we're eco friendly without kind of uh specifically yeah explaining how you consider the economic the environmental i should say how you the, the idea that you can say that you're eco friendly without spelling out the specific environmental benefit is not you know the FTC frowns upon that because it's something that's that's too vague and doesn't really educate the consumer in any way. Just says, hey, we're eco friendly, you know. And you know these are these are products uh, produced in factories, and you know I don't necessarily consider uh, my shirt or my iPhone eco friendly, right? You know, even though they're produced in factories too. So it's like, why are these? specific products considered eco-friendly now you can say you may make the point it's in comparison, it's in comparison right, right? But it's that's, that's something that should definitely be yeah it needs to be spelled out so agreed 100 percent. so anyway i'll be looking at that issue a little more and it, you know it could be there is you know I, I mean obviously it's great that that people consider the environment when they purchase products i mean i think obviously we need that um but uh, I think you need to be a little bit, people need to, we need to have a, an objective set of facts uh, developed. And I don't, that's definitely not out there right now. So. Okay. Well, I can't wait for that reporting from you. Okay. So the Golden Globes were just on. The Golden Globes took place. Yes. Sunday night. You said, I read your story. You said there was a lot of jewelry. A parade of glamour. A parade of glamour and maximalism. There was when so When you say maximalism, much. you mean that people are wearing a lot. They're being very flashy. I mean, yes. They're being very flashy, but not, you know, not in a distasteful way. It's a really cool look that's kind of surfacing. I mean, everywhere, industry-wide. But you see it with the stylists who are sort of always there um, getting the jump on us and leading the way with trends. Um, they are no longer, there used to be the practice of like, here is the one incredible, opulent, exquisite necklace and no more jewelry on you. That was it. You know, like you would see somebody with just an amazing necklace for years, the last few years, it's been, here's an amazing pair of earrings, Lorraine Schwartz emeralds, you know, Chopard diamond exquisiteness. And then there would be nothing else on these gorgeous, amazing actresses. Now, and what we definitely saw Sunday night was um, a return to sort of, I think, 70s style, 80s style, um, pile it on, more is more, and, but not, and not in a haphazard way, in a really cool, stylish, like heir apparent to um, Abfell, uh, the rare bird, um, the amazing New York woman who piles on jewelry um, in, in, in the coolest ways. And I feel like we're sort of taking a page from her, um, and from other great style icons. And last, I mean, on Sunday night, we saw just some amazing pairings. Like we saw Charlize Theron, who was in, um, kind of like 
head to waist bulgari and it was it was various intricate diamond bracelets it was a pair of exquisite diamond earrings it was um i think she had something else on too oh and before i go further i'll tell you that a lot the accessory that was kind of most of note at the globes was the times up two bracelet which okay some people wore it as a bracelet it's actually a ribbon that um ariane phillips a stylist who's worked with madonna for ever um, she created the first times up to, or sorry, the first times up button that everybody wore last year when everybody wore black to support the times up movement. And this year, it's times up two. And she also, um, Ariane also uh, designed this ribbon, which Charlize and others wore as, I believe, Rachel Brosnahan too, wore as sort of a ribbon bracelet. So you would see all these diamonds, this mess of diamonds, and then you would see the great times up. And know that the movement is still alive. Why? Why was it Times Up too? It's like a, it's like a sequel, or just like the second year, or. I think that if people wore, so this is just completely my opinion, but I think if people wore the Times Up button for the second year, it'd be like, okay, still supportive of Times Up, great. This sort of brought it into the present, made it like we are not forgetting. We are not messing around. Also, there is something specific that they wore it for, and I'm on my laptop trying to figure it out. Yes. So they, okay, it aims to double the number of women in leadership and across other spaces where women are underrepresented. So um, that's what was being discussed, and that that's what that uh, ribbon was representing. Okay, so so going back to the glorious maximalism you talked about, so that is that, do you think that's something that, the actresses wanted, or was that kind of a deliberate choice uh, by their stylists? You know, we're moving towards, it's a very good question, and what we've seen, Amy Elliott and um, Brittany Simonitz, also at JCK, we kind of all cover, we cover different facets of style and fashion for JCK, and we've all seen jewelry brands and then style influencers and jewelry influencers move towards a chunkier look. So you're looking at chunky chains, bracelets that are chunky. We've been sort of under the grip of this um, like daily gold look. Have you heard that look? Have you heard about that, Rob? Daily gold? Me, me personally, no. Okay, so daily gold has been referring to for a really long time, probably like going on five or six years, really delicate daily gold pieces. Um, uh, like Jennifer Meyer, so all the neck, the necklaces that you see on probably half your female friends, it's just like a very delicate gold chain with a couple of cool little tiny pendants on it. That would sort of be representative of that look. But what we've been seeing kind of suddenly, sort of fast as a trend in the industry is, um, is chunky, you know, like ch- chunky signet rings, chunky necklaces, um, you know, like... Um, curb link bracelets that are a little bit oversized. You're seeing this on social media with the influencers. And then uh, and then we're definitely seeing that with celebs, with cool celebs and celebs that love jewelry. And so that's what we saw at the Globes. We saw like Allison, um, Allison Janney wore this just insane. I called it on our Instagram, which is at JCK Magazine, by the way. And I would love for everybody to go there and look at what we're talking about because we have a highlight at the top of our feed that talks that has like I don't know how many pictures it has, but I was I was just like just like throwing them up there with credits as I got them the night of the Golden Globes. So please please do go visit. I hope you enjoy it. 
Um, but so Alice and Janney wore this David Webb. I believe it was vintage. I could be wrong, but just like exquisite turquoise and other gemstone necklace that was literally, it's like a piece. It's not like a colorless diamond choker or something that was sort of, you know, we've, that we've seen for years, this sort of like white metal colorless diamond deal. Like so many people wore color and so many people went big. Um, another person who went super big was uh, Sorsha Ronan, who did um, Chopard earrings that featured, I'm going to get this right. Wait a minute. Yes. 34.88 carats of pear-shaped emeralds, and then 21.43 carats cushion-cut diamonds set in titanium from Chopard. And they were just like, ugh, like what is even going on? So beautiful. Taraji P. Henson wore this insane Roberta, Roberta Coyne um, necklace and bracelet, and she had a very, did you see Taraji P. Henson? She had a very revealing dress on, sort of the her entire chest area was sort of open, but she's gorgeous and amazing and it worked. And so the only thing sort of kind of above her waist, <laughs> it felt like, was this insane Roberto Coin diamond necklace, which was just totally stunning. And then obviously the big story of the Golden Globes was Lady Gaga in that Tiffany and Company necklace. Right. That got tons of press. Okay. So it was made for her. Um, it was made for her in Tiffany's Fifth Avenue flagship store workshop, which I believe is, I have not been there, but I believe it's above the Fifth Avenue flagship store. It's called the Aurora Necklace, named after the Aurora Borealis. It featured over 300 pear-shaped and round brilliant diamonds, leading down to this just like gargantuan, gorgeous pear-shaped diamond drop that weighed more than 20 carats. So the total diamond weight for Lady Gaga's Tiffany necklace of the Golden Globes was over 80 carats. And did, did it, was it awkward to wear something like that? I guess she <laughs> carried it off pretty well. That is a really good question. I feel like Lady Gaga, I mean, like, you know, this woman can wear anything and still, and look pretty amazing. I mean, she, she just has such bold sort of, you know, iconic style that I feel like she got away with it beautifully. She had other Tiffany pieces on too, but that was really the one that was like, oh, so good. Um, and then she wore it with this huge periwinkle um, dress. And then she dyed her whitish, grayish blonde hair periwinkle to match. So if you haven't seen it, definitely Google her. Or, I'm sorry, don't Google her. Go to the JCK Magazine Instagram and you will see pictures of her there. And Rob, it was um, pretty spectacular. The, the jewelry display was incredible. Okay, so the the chunky look, in in a way, you know, there's kind of this uh, ethos now of like playing things down necessarily, right? Not necessarily being flashy, or maybe there is. I don't know. Maybe that's you think that's old. That we're we're, we're beyond that. So we're we're back to flashy again. We are back to flashy. We're back to like seventies chunky realness. It's really good. We're, we're kind of over the delicate, understated. Um, I think that it's just a pendulum swing back. And I think it'll take some time, obviously. I mean, we are all at JCK seeing what's coming up all the time. And so I know that I personally have a tendency to sort of jump the gun on trends sometimes and be like, it's happening, it's happening. And then sometimes they, they do happen, but you know, sometimes they don't. But I do see across the board 
jewelers like just just chunking up their collections and you know even people who were sort of the specialists and the the seminal jewelers who of that daily gold look they are um they're 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 showing bigger pieces with more volume more much more metal you're seeing some designers go to um vermeil and uh, and other you know non 100 percent gold or non 14 carat non 18 carat to get the bigger look at a good price point um and i think that's i think i think that's great i think i think we're due for a change um and i think that it's a really fun trend that is very jewelry positive oh yeah you know there's no mistaking that you're wearing jewelry when you're in pieces like this and do you so do you see this as a trend in general or just as kind of a red carpet trend not and i know that one influences the other but i see it as a trend in general i definitely see um i see also this emphasis um and I look at designers like, oh, well, okay, let me back up. I see an emphasis on chain as even just plain chain as, um, as a huge thing that's, that's coming down to us as, you know, just sort of like the next huge wow, wow, wow trend. I mean, it, it has been about the pendant and about what's coming off a chain. The chain has almost been, it's been so fine and delicate that it's almost been, it's almost felt incidental at times like it's more about what's hanging off of it and now the chain is the thing and you're seeing designers like Marla Aaron um Brent Neal you're seeing designers who are you know adopting the curb and other really cool classic chain types um the biker chain and and they're blowing them up making them bigger and people are wearing them alone and layered obviously layering is still super super big but I think that that is a really cool turn of events. And I think that it's a really fresh, fun look. So I think it's, to answer your question, I think, yeah, I think it's just across the board. We're going chunky. Okay, okay. This, this is the weird story of the week. This is from the Daily oh, Dot. Oh, I'm excited. I know. This is, and this is an interesting one. It's from the Daily Dot. It's about a guy on uh, UK Reddit, uh, a gentleman named Proper Mistake Regret. Ooh, okay. And this is this is what he wrote. He said, "I proposed to my girlfriend while drunk on New Year's Eve night. Can I cancel and get the ring back?" What? Uh, and that that is not well, real. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So I'm not done. Said, okay, I got more. Okay, go. Okay, okay go. Go, go, uh, go, go. He says he fell in love with a coworker and bought the ring for her, and has been planning okay. to break up with his girlfriend for a while. But then he wrote, I saw people... Pre- Wait, so he has a girlfriend. He, okay, he has a girlfriend, right? And then, but he fell in love with a co-worker and he bought the ring for her. But then I saw people proposing, so I wanted to go with the flow and propose to my girlfriend <laughs> whilst partially drunk. That's a good yeah. plan. <laughs> Can I get the ring back? Solid plan, buddy. <laughs> Can I get the ring back and cancel the engagement, please? And the, the article goes on to say, though genuine legal advice was quick to follow, many Reddit users chose to point out the problems with proper mistake regrets decisions. Why was he dating two women at once? Who just, a, point a. Who just decides to propose because everyone else is doing it? Somebody was super bright. <laughs> those, are, those are good questions. 
Okay, so so he had a, so he had a girlfriend. He's he started crushing on a coworker. Right. And he bought a ring for and her. And then said, yeah. And then so bought a ring. But did my question is, and maybe this was addressed. Did he buy the ring? And then sort of pocketed and was like, I may just one day propose. Or was it, I'm buying this ring for her? Or, or was he buying the ring for the other woman? Was no, that clarified? Yeah, he's buying the ring for the girlfriend at work. And then ended up, no, no, no. He's Okay, he's buying the ring for the co-worker that he fell in love with. Right? And then he ended up giving it to his long-term girlfriend. This seems like a very uh, wise gentleman. This seems like a person who has it together. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think, and, and I think uh, that's demonstrated by the fact that he asked for legal advice on Reddit. No, yes, no. Oh, I have sympathy for yeah, this hungover person. But anyway, it's, there's more to the story. I'm not, I'm not done here. Oh, my gosh. Okay, go okay. for it. Proper mistake regret didn't actually seem to regret his decision all that much as he spent most of the time in the comments complaining about the cost of the ring and the unfairness of the situation. He later considered stealing the ring until someone, <laughs> until someone told him that would be illegal. So my question is, is he even in contact with this woman that he's proposed well, uh, to? Let me, I, and, does, and, it, does it end? The story ends. No. I, I'm oh. going to answer all, all right. your when questions. You, you uh, there, there okay, plenty, you'll end. probably have plenty of questions after the conclusion. All right. Give me a good the end at the end. I'm going to shut it. Okay, go ahead. No, it's okay. It's okay. I'm just telling you that um, there's more. In the end, proper mistakes regret did some soul searching and came to, and it says in parentheses, likely terrible decision. Nail biter. He is going to conceal his affair for the rest of his life and marry the woman he accidentally proposed to. No! He's, going, he's like, I don't want to be engaged. I, I gave this ring to this, this human, and I don't want to be married to her, but because the ring is a solid, what, like a binding forever thing, I'm just going for it. Yeah, I think, is that, I think he found... Well, here, here's, right? his, here's his reasoning. I've known my girlfriend longer. He's, he's from England, so he said, my mom... And my mom gave me a call yeah. saying she's happy and she's always wanted grandchildren. And uh, I didn't want to disappoint my mom. I, I'm going to marry my girlfriend. She's already planned out the wedding venue on her MacBook. Oh, so he's not. Ah, this is like, oh, this is a tangled web of craziness. So he's going to marry the, the original girlfriend, not the coworker. He's going, to marry, he's going to marry the girlfriend he, he accidentally proposed to, uh, break it off with the woman he fell in love with, and that's it. I, I, I think it's a happy ending. I'm not 100% sure. I think it's... I'm wishing this person a little, a little bit less insanity in his future. And I also... Less alcohol, maybe. Think less, yes, less bourbon... And a little bit more, um, I, yes, this is, this is, Rob, this is a crazy it is story. A, it is a weird story of the week. It is the weird story of the week. Okay, hi, everybody. Um, this is uh, JCK News Director Rob Bates, and we have uh, an interview today with Paul Zimniski, a diamond analyst 
who's here to talk about lab-grown diamonds and the state of the industry, what's going to go on with mine, with lab-grown, with all the different producers. So, um, Paul, why don't you, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, your background, your origin story, how you got involved in uh, being a, a diamond analyst? Yeah, sure. Well, first off, thanks for having me. Honored to, to be here and be the first guest. I think it's a great, great idea to do the podcast thing. I think you're going to, uh, you know, be quite successful with it. Um, you know, as, as far as me, I started out as a metals and mining analyst um, for a family office, which is kind of like a hedge fund. It's an institutional investment. Um, and, you know, I, I started in, you know, in probably around 2005, and it was the, the Chinese commodity boom was happening and the opportunities on, on the trading desk were um, kind of in the metals and mining and the, the commodity areas. And uh, that's kind of where I started as, a, as an analyst. Um, and diamonds represented a really, really small part of what we did. Um, but I kind of always w was kind of intrigued and kind of the, the mystique always uh, kind of kind of garnered interest from my end. Um, and again, given that it represented just a really, really small, you know, part, part of the commodity spectrum, um, you know, it didn't get a lot of coverage. People don't really understand the industry. They didn't really take the time, I think, to, to, to really, um, you know, analyze in-depthly. And um, I, I think that kind of creates an inherent opportunity um, when, you, when you're kind of, you know, analyzing, you know, companies or industries. If there aren't a lot of people taking the time to really do the work, um, there's what we would kind of call like edge or, you know, trading opportunity in, in the space. And that was, I think, kind of a reason to kind of stick with it. And I continue to follow it. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I think I kind of have the entrepreneurial spirit and I always wanted to do my own thing. And uh, I think it's kind of a, kind of a, like the, the right size industry and it kind of is a nice niche. And, uh, you know, um, I, I just, uh, I've been doing this for about, you know, four or five years full time now. I'm exclusively covering um, the diamond industry as an independent and, uh, and I love what I do. And, uh, and I have to say, it's just, it's never dull. There's always something going on in this industry to keep it, uh, to keep it interesting. And, uh, and I, I have to say, I really love the people in this industry. There's some, some great, some great characters for sure. So, and, and do you, you generate reports, you do speaking, do you, do you do consulting for people or? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a, uh, an independent analyst and consultant. So um, the, the original business model was to outsource uh, you know, analytical work to institutional investors looking to gain access to the space, kind of like I was when I was on the other side of the business. And, and again, given that uh, you know, there could be a few opportunities with some of the publicly traded miners, for instance, um, most of these funds won't spend the time uh, to, to really, I, I guess, get the in-depth understanding they need, given the fact that they can't really scale the investment. So it's it's kind of hard to justify spending a lot of time on the space, but if there's a good value opportunity, um, that's kind of where I come in, and I, they can kind of outsource that work to me. I, I kind of, you know, you know, specifically deal with, you know, diamonds, specifically diamond uh, mining, supply-demand fundamentals, and that's kind of an area where if you can figure that out, you can kind of figure out where some of these stocks are going. So that was kind of the original business model, and, um, and I think it's kind of uh, since kind of extended to some of the, you know, the, the companies in the industry um, that will kind of use my work, say, um, you know, in, in, in strategy discussions and, um, you know, whether it's investor relations or um, you know, just general, you know, uh, you know, raising capital, that sort of thing. So they use my work for that. Uh, so it, it's definitely more focused on the kind of the, the finance end. And I would say kind of uh, supply demand is, is kind of the area I try to, to focus in specifically. And supply demand and prices, I guess? 
the, the, how how both of them affect price. Yeah, that's that's the key. That's I think if you can figure out the supply demand, kind of the output is kind of price projection. So I'll try to look at you know I'll look at global natural supply and uh, you know obviously if supplies come in and kind of demands remaining stable, going higher, that uh, you know should imply a higher you know price going forward. So that's kind of the idea. Um, the supply side's a lot easier to figure out. Um, you can kind of see what supply is going to look like 10 years out, given that it takes you know up to 10 years to to bring a new diamond mine you know online. Um, and as long as there's no you know accident or or some kind of unforeseen event that kind of takes supply offline, you can get a pretty good picture of what supply looks out you know for for five, 10 years out. The demand side's a lot more difficult to figure out. Um, it's it's tied to kind of the global macro economy. So I think if you can figure that out, you can figure anything out. So that's, that's certainly the challenging part. Um, but diamonds, they, they tend to correlate, uh, demand tends to correlate, you know, quite highly with, um, you know, global GDP. And, uh, and, and you know, that's gonna be, you know, sensitive to, to emerging markets, for instance. And that's kind of why we're seeing volatility in the market right now. A lot of it has to do with, you know, concern uh, of, of a Chinese slowdown. Um, so that's definitely kind of the, the tough part to figure out, but it's, it's certainly, uh, certainly uh, fun and, and challenging in that respect. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, so a while ago, the big talk was this supply-demand differential that natural diamond supply was starting to shrink and that uh, with India and China opening up, that there would be this kind of big pull away and that diamond prices would start to see these exponential leaps. And I, that hasn't happened, I think, mostly because of, I would say, because of demand issues that you talked about, right? Yeah, well, that's kind of the thing. I think everybody looks at diamond price and they're like, well, demand must be coming off and it's because people aren't getting married and the millennials, you know, don't like material possessions and all of this stuff. I think it has a lot less to do with that. You know, if you look at end consumer demand and you really look at the figures, you know, it's been growing, um, you know, on, on an annualized basis. And if you look at it in real and nominal terms, you know, if, if you take out the inflation, it's still growing. Um, I think it's been, you know, the last, last little while, the last four or five years, I think it's been more of a supply issue. Um, and that's, you know, you had three new mines come on, come on stream in 2017. Um, you know, you had uh, Goucha Quay mine in, in Canada, which is four or five million carat a year producer. It's, it's quite significant in size. Um, Stornoway uh, has a diamond mine in Canada as well, um, almost two million carats. And you had the Likabong mine in Lesotho, Africa um, that came online as well. So you had, you know, almost 10 million carats of, of new production coming online in 2017. And 2017 was actually, um, you know, the, the, the largest... Uh, diamond output and, and, you know, probably 10 years since the global financial crisis. So, you know, you were kind of looking at those reports a few years back, and I don't think anybody really, you know, was was, was kind of, you know, factoring the fact there was going to be this, uh, you know, this, this incremental increase in supply in 2017. Um, and I think that's kind of, you know, what's kind of led to, to pressure on prices. And then you had, you know, in the midstream, the, in the Indian manufacturing industry, you had um, a situation where you know the the, the manufacturers were overlevered. Um, the Chinese or the Indian government was trying to um, stimulate uh, export businesses in the country. Um, they made you know financing to the diamond manufacturers quite easy, and um, there was this you know there's midstream demand that probably you know wasn't justified. So you kind of had over you know oversupply over over demand in the midstream segment. So I think there's just too much supply you know throughout the industry, and I think that's kind of what's led to, the, to the, the pressure on prices more so than demand. Could lab-grown also be playing a role in that, you know, the whole idea was, okay, you wouldn't, you'd have to pay more for diamonds because there was no, there was nothing else you could use, right? But now if you have lab-grown, whether everybody thinks it's a, the same kind of substitute or not, you know, that is possible to fill in some of the gaps, correct? 
Yeah, I mean, we're, I think we're still at quite early stages here. I mean, it's, it's so difficult to figure out what the supply-demand picture for live credit looks like, given that most of the companies are, are private. It's, it's, it's a very opaque, it's very strategic, uh, you know, industry um, at, at this point. But it's still, I think we could conclude that it's still, you know, relatively small, you know, compared to natural output, you know, less than 5%, you know, of supply and demand. Um, I think we can say that quite confidently at this point. So I don't really think that's having as much, you know, of, of a factor on the natural industry right now, today, as most people think. Um, what I would say is I think that the biggest concern right now, you know, today, if you look at supply, say, you know, the small categories, you know, under three grainers, um, you know, there, there's, there's certainly excess supply. Um, you know, in the second half of, of 2018, you know, small category were down, you know, 10 to 15 percent and, you know, larger stones were unchanged or up, uh, you know, a you know, low single digit percent. So uh, right now we're seeing this, you know, if you look at rough prices, there's this, you know, large dislocation between small and, and, and medium and large size diamonds. It's probably the largest dislocation we've seen in about five years. Um, and I think part of that has to do with smaller lab created kind of making their way through the supply chain as natural and that's that's kind of been a, a big concern for the industry for a few years now and uh, you know the, the the big players are certainly trying to continue to kind of crank out equipment to screen for that and try to make the equipment you know more affordable and more economic so everybody in the supply chain can have it but i would say the the, the biggest impact that lab credit having is right now is is the undisclosed uh, still making its way through the supply chain right and i i think one thing that we have to uh, perhaps look out for, or perhaps that's something that, that may evolve, is that with the smaller diamonds, there may not be the differentiation between natural and lab-created that we've seen before. That if you go into a uh, store and you see a, 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 a bracelet with 100 diamonds, right, and doesn't matter if, you know, half of them are, are lab-created and half of them are natural, it doesn't necessarily matter to the consumer, first of all, because the natural's a lot of times aren't even that nice in the first place. And, you know, they may even be lab created in the first right now anyway. They're just not telling people. So I think we could definitely see a future, certainly with the, with the smaller diamonds where you say this bracelet contains 100 diamonds and then there's an asterisk and you say maybe that those diamonds could be natural and those diamonds could be lab created. And that could be part of the future. I kind of disagree with the notion that customers would be okay with that. Again, I think if we're getting to the point where the price of you know lab created and, and natural are the same within the smaller sizes, like I don't see why anyone would want a, a lab created, especially if you have you know a natural that's that kind of you can kind of you know kind of kind of uh, you know conclude what the source is. Um, but you're certainly hearing that, and you're hearing in the industry, you're hearing that they won't even screen the, the smaller goods because they say it doesn't make economic sense to do so because you know they're essentially worth the same anyway. Um, so I guess we're going to kind of see that play out and we'll kind of see how consumers react to that. Right. I mean, I guess in that scenario, if the lab created is nicer, if it looks nicer, right, for the same money. And, you know, you're not dealing with like the highest quality items anyway. Do, will people care? I mean, maybe some people will care. But, you know, you're, you're talking about 200 diamonds or 100 diamonds. You know, people aren't necessarily... As a consumer, it won't necessarily make a difference. I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen, but that's something that's certainly possible, I see. Yeah, I, I, I certainly would agree that there's going to be some consumers that aren't going to care. I guess the question now is, you know, how, how many won't care and, and how many will care? And I think there's going to be more consumers that care. I think if they're going to buy a, an expensive diamond with a nice center stone that's natural, 
I think they're going to want you know sad stones yeah, that are natural yeah, as well. But that's that's just me. We'll see. Right, and that's but that's a different category than what I'm talking about. That would be the bigger stones. Yeah, but I just I think if you have a, a ring that say has a halo and you have a nice center stone, I think you're going to want the the, the, the the stone on natural round again, especially if they're the same price. And again, you might get a little bit of a higher quality with the lab created. Um, but uh, yeah, that that's kind of I think the big the big question at this point: Are consumers willing to um, buy a lab created if it costs you know the same as a natural if they're getting you know an uptick in the, the color and clarity? And I think that's kind of kind of the angle that the lab created producers should should certainly be uh, kind of running with is that you can buy you know a five thousand dollar one carat engagement ring <clears throat> but you can get a you know a, you can get a you know a, an SI natural or, or a VS1 colorless lab created and you know, are going to spend the five grand and get the get the upgraded quality um, that's that's probably the angle that that they should be running with uh, yeah and I think if you look at the the people who are having success with it right now um, I think a lot of the independents are doing very well with it and I think it's because right now they like it because they get, they usually get good margins. It depends on the company, obviously. But um, it's not on Blue Nile. Um, it's not sold by Signet. Uh, it has a different kind of grading by GIA. I think it's certainly possible that all three of those barriers will fall, and then it could become less attractive to the independent jeweler. But for now, I think it's a pretty easy sale in that you, you tell people, okay, this is $1,000 less for the same thing, you know, whether you agree with that or not is, is you know, up for debate. But people say, okay, this is $1,000 less for the same thing. A lot of these, these are very young people getting married, financially pressed. I think it's, an, uh, and then you add eco and ethical and blah, 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 blah. And I think it's a very, uh, to a lot of people, it's, a, it's an easy sale, and it's an attractive sale. And a lot of times, even the jeweler, not only does the Signac not carry them, like the jeweler across the street doesn't carry them. So it's, it's something that, that can kind of make them stand out in a little way. Yeah, I just, I, I think the one topic that doesn't get nearly enough, you know, coverage, you know, with regard to lab created and natural is, I mean, we just have to continue to, to, to remind ourselves that, you know, you know, a diamond is a luxury purchase, you know, and if it was purely a fundamental purchase, you know, based on rationality, it would be different. Um, so again, you know, chemically, a lab created and a, and a natural are, are, are the same. And, you know, I would say from an industrial standpoint, from an industrial application, it makes complete sense to go with the, the cheaper one if they are chemically identical. Um, but, you know, we're talking about luxury, you know, item here. And, and jewelry is different than an industrial, you know, diamond used for, in, for industrial purposes. Um, and it's a purchase based on, you know, based on how it makes someone feel. Like we all know that, um, but at the end of the day, I think that's ultimately what's gonna, what's gonna kind of make or break, you know, the success of the natural and or the, you know, the lab created industry, you know, and in that regarded, you know, how well is the, the natural diamond industry continue to to sell the idea that you're, you know, you're, you're buying an emotional, you know, you're, you're buying an emotional uh, item here, and it's not, you know, necessarily a fundamental, you know, item from the standpoint of the consumer. And I think that's. What's what's ultimately gonna gonna make the difference, um, and I think that's kind of where the DPA comes in. If the DPA is successful doing that, okay. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Do you want to you want to plug anything, or you want to plug your website? Yeah, that, that, that would be great. <laughs> so, yeah, go, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I can plug it if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank uh, you. Paul Zimniski, Z I M N I S K Y dot com. Paul Zimniski dot com, and you're on Twitter. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm on, pretty active on Twitter, and I have a, a monthly industry report that I distribute, um, and it's, it's primarily, I, I think, kind of directed at uh, anyone that's kind of interested in investing in the industry. I kind of have supply-demand forecasts. I kind of, you know, track track the lab-created uh, spreads that we were discussing today, and uh, kind of any kind of kind of forecast, uh, you know, economically speaking or otherwise, that I think is going to going to going to kind of you know impact uh, you know diamond prices in the industry as a whole. So. Um, if anybody's interested, uh, reach out to me. You can find my uh, email address on the website, and I'd be uh, happy to send you a, a sample copy. All right, great. Well, thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation, and I really appreciate you coming down here. Thanks for having me. This All was right. fun. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Jamie Berger, and special thanks to Levi Sharp for his expert recording help. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.